First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, our desire is to do as the choir sang for us earlier, to come into this place and together to behold our King seated on His throne. Father, we thank You that You are ruling and reigning over this world, that You're ruling and reigning over our church, over our lives and families. We pray today we would see how secure Your kingdom is, how You have promised to grow it, to bless Your King, to give Him a kingdom that will have no end. We pray today that through your word, you would speak to our hearts, speak to our lives. Father, you know what's going on in every single one of our lives here today. The word that we need to hear from you. Father, as we leave from this place, may we leave closer to our King and more in love with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to 2 Samuel 16 that was just read for us. And as you're turning there, I don't know how many uh, NASCAR fans we have uh, in the room today, but you know, even if you're not really a NASCAR fan, I'm pretty sure uh, almost all of us saw the really just horrifying crash that took place uh, just up the road from us at the Daytona 500 uh, this past week. Uh, it's uh, the kind of, of crash, uh, the one that uh, Ryan Newman experienced where his car flipped. And it's just the kind of crash that you wonder how anybody could survive that, how anybody could come out of that kind of situation unscathed. And yet, uh, miraculously, just a few days later, Ryan Newman walked out of uh, the hospital uh, under his own power. Just, just amazing. And, you know, when we read this story, King David is in this type of situation in his life. He's in a situation where you wonder, how could anybody survive this? How could anybody come out of a situation like this and live to tell about it? We're going to see today, though, that God does bring David out of this situation. God does save King David, and he uses some pretty strange things to save him, like as the title of the message indicates, hair and hot air. But no matter how strange the things are that God uses to save David, the important thing is God does save David. God does extend David's kingdom just as he promised David he would do. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that right now David is definitely at a low point in His life, and a lot of that was his own fault. Back in 2 Samuel 11, David sinned against the Lord. He took another man's wife. He murdered her husband to cover up for what he had done. And even though God had forgiven David, God told David there would be consequences in his life because of his sin. And some of those consequences include what his own son Absalom was doing. At this very moment, rebelling against David, usurping his throne. And so when our story opens today, David is on the run. David has fled from Jerusalem. 
And Absalom, his usurping son, has taken up residence in the palace in Jerusalem, acting as though he is the king. And so again, at this particular moment, things aren't looking good for David. We need to keep 2 Samuel 12 in mind as we study this passage today. That's where we read about God's hand of discipline that he said would fall on David's life because of his sin. And so what we're reading here is what God said would happen happening. But not only do we need to remember 2 Samuel 12 as we study this passage today, we also need to remember 2 Samuel 7. Because in chapter 7, before any of this happened, God gave David a promise that would never be taken away. And here, here's the promise, 2 Samuel 7, 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. That was the promise of God. You see, David is not a perfect king, but David is God's chosen king. And, and through David's line, God would one day send a perfect king, the son of David. Jesus Christ, who would start a kingdom that is still going on to this day. A kingdom that the Bible says will have no end. And so what's true with David's kingdom is even more true with the son of David's kingdom. Here's really the main idea that I want us to see today in this story. Despite all attacks against it, God's kingdom will not fail and his chosen king will reign forever and ever. If you're here today and by faith in King Jesus, you're a part of God's kingdom, then there are some truths I want you to see in this story that I believe and pray will fill you with hope and confidence in just how secure the kingdom of God is. Altogether, I want us to see four truths about God's kingdom and God's chosen king in this story. Here's the first truth. We should not forget that every attack against God's chosen king is still under God's sovereign control. Now there is no question that David is under attack here. He's under attack by his son Absalom who in verse 15 makes it to Jerusalem and is beginning to install himself as the king. David is also under attack by this man, Ahithophel. And if you remember, Ahithophel was David's top advisor uh, who pretty much got it right every single time, no matter what his counsel was, it was always right. But he had gone turncoat on David and had defected to Team Absalom. We're going to come back to Ahithophel in just a moment. But in the midst of all of these attacks, David also has some friends. One of his friends is a man named Hushai. You remember from last time, Hushai went to meet David when he was on the run from Absalom and he offered to go with him. But David said, Hushai, you can really do me more good if you would go back to Jerusalem, uh, present yourself to Absalom, and act as though you are actually on team Absalom. And maybe God can use you to kind of undermine the counsel that Ahithophel will give him. And we find out in chapter 17, that's precisely uh, what ends up happening. But first, Hushai has to get Absalom to trust him. 
And so in verse 16, Hushai walks into Jerusalem right at the same moment that Absalom makes it to Jerusalem. And he calls out to him, long live the king, long live the king. Now, when Hushai says that, he actually doesn't say what king he's talking about. Absalom would have heard that and thought he was talking about himself, but he just as well could have been saying, long live King David. But in any event, Absalom isn't sure what to make of Hushai. And so he uh, questions him and he asks him, why aren't you out with your King David, your friend? And then in verse 18, uh, we see Hushai, res- Hushai responding. He says, no, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will, will remain. Now that's pretty ambiguous as well. He doesn't use his name again. And, and really the one that the Lord has chosen was King David, who Hushai was being loyal to even at this moment. In verse 19, Hushai tries to get Absalom to think that it's just natural. The way that he served his father, uh, now he would serve uh, the son. And apparently that's enough to convince uh, Absalom that Hushai is on his side because in just a little bit he's going to call for Hushai and he's going to ask him for his counsel, which plays a major role in this story. In verse 20, though, the scene changes a little bit. Hushai is not there. Now uh, Absalom is there with Ahithophel. And he asks Ahithophel, what should I do uh, to help me solidify my hold on the throne of my father David? And Ahithophel says this in verse 21. He says, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. And then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. Back when David was fleeing from Jerusalem, the text said he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace in his absence. These are the ten concubines that Ahithophel is talking about. And he's telling Absalom to sleep with them. And then if he does that, everybody will know that there is no way that he and his father David are ever going to be reconciled. They they will know that a a line has been drawn in the sand. Uh, The people who are with you, uh, Ahithophel is saying, uh, they're going to know that they have backed somebody who is strong, uh, somebody who is decisive, somebody who is a winner. And your hold on the throne will be stronger than ever. And so in the next verse, it says they set up a little tent on top of the roof of the palace. Uh, Absalom takes all ten of David's concubines up there, and this, this is as public as can be. Everybody in Israel knew what was going on inside that tent, and this is the point. They wanted everyone to know. In the Near East at that time when a king took the throne from another king, he would inherit that king's harem of Wives, And so really this was a, a power play. And it might have been effective, but it certainly was against God's law. And it was ungodly. And really, even though they were trying to attack and weaken David through all of this, really what they were doing was unknowingly fulfilling something that God had already told David was going to happen. Right after his sin with Bathsheba in chapter 12, this is what God said to David through the prophet Nathan. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an adversary against you from your own house. Now, who is that? 
Absalom. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. You know, I think it's powerful to read this and to see how exactly Absalom's sinful actions here fulfill what God told David was going to happen. And he does it in a tent on the roof of the palace in the very same spot where David was standing when he looked down and saw Bathsheba bathing that night. Here's the reason why I bring all of this up. We cannot miss this. Even though what Absalom is doing here is sinful and disgusting and wrong, even though it seems like things are out of control, or maybe even worse, that a man like Absalom is in control, what we find out is that really God is still in total control. That what is happening in this story, what Absalom is doing, is just fulfilling the word of God that he has already spoken. That even the attacks against God's chosen king are under God's sovereign control. Now fast forward a thousand years to the time of Christ. Jesus is arrested in the garden. He's betrayed. He's handed over to the chief priest and scribes. He is found guilty in a totally illegal kangaroo court that happens in the middle of the night. Pilate doesn't have the courage to let Jesus go, even though he knows that he has done nothing wrong. And so Jesus is handed over by sinful men to be crucified. It seems like everything is totally out of control, that evil people are having their way with God's chosen king. And yet just the opposite is the case. What they were doing in their sinful desires was fulfilling the sovereign purpose and plan of God to save us all. This is how Peter put it in Acts chapter 2. He said, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Yes, what happened to Jesus was evil, but it was all a part of God's good, sovereign plan to save us. Now, fast forward 2,000 more years to the church today. Sometimes it seems like the attacks against God's kingdom, like the attacks against God's church are so strong. And sometimes it seems almost like the enemy is totally having his way. And yet, that is not the case, church. The Absaloms of this world are not in control. The powers that be in this world are not in control. Satan is not ultimately in control. Our God is in total control. Every attack that comes against us is underneath the hand of his sovereign power. Jesus said he has founded his church on the rock and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the first truth we need to hear today. Every attack against God's chosen king is still under God's sovereign control. Here's the second truth. God is able. He is able to do whatever he has purpose to do, and his purpose is to build a kingdom that will not end. 
You can see God's purposes at work at the beginning of chapter 7. This part of the story features a showdown, really, between two of Absalom's advisors, Ahithophel and Hushai. And the first up to bat is Ahithophel. And in verses 1 through 4, he gives Absalom some advice on what he should do. Essentially, his plan is, Absalom, you need to go right now. You need to take David out quickly. Just just let me do it. Let me get 12,000 men. Let me go right now while David is weak, uh, while he is scared, while he is on the run, and I'm going to attack when he least expects it before he's even ready for it. I'm going to take just David out. I'm going to cut off the head of the snake, and if I do that, everybody else will have no choice but to come back to you. That was Ahithophel's plan, and at first, everybody thought, as usual, Ahithophel is hit it out of the park. This is another winner from Ahithophel. But for some reason, and we're not really told why, for some reason, Absalom, maybe just out of curiosity, says, bring, bring Hushai out here. I want to hear what he has to say. And, and then he gives Hushai a big advantage because he doesn't just say, tell us what we should do. The text says he tells Hushai everything Ahithophel already said and then says, do you agree with that or not? Now, Hushai knows he is here for this exact moment. And he has to think quickly on his feet. I I agree with what one person said. He probably knew whatever Ahithophel said is right. (laughs) So I need to counsel the exact opposite of whatever he just said. But I also need to make it convincing. And so as you read his speech, which is in chapter 17, it starts in verse 7 and goes down to verse 13. This is a masterful speech. A persuasive speech. And we're not going to walk through all the details of this, but he starts out by undermining the plan that Ahithophel had given. He said, Ahithophel's plan is not good this time. Notice he said this time. He's acknowledging he's almost always right, but but on this particular occasion, he's missed it just a little bit. And and then he said, you can't just go and attack David right now. David is like a she-bear that's been robbed of his cubs. He's a mighty warrior. All his men are mighty warriors. If you go and attack him right now, that might not go well for you. David's probably hiding in some pit anyway. You're not going to find him if you try to go get him right now. It's just not going to work. And then he begins to give an alternate strategy. He says, Absalom, you, you need to go get a huge army. You need to go all over Israel, from the north to the south, from Dan to Beersheba. You need to get a a huge army together, and you don't need to let Ahithophel lead the army. You need to lead the army yourself. I think think that really appealed to Absalom's pride, right? Why let Ahithophel go in and get all the glory for the victory? Absalom, you could be at the front of the biggest army Israel has ever seen, and you could descend upon uh, David like like the dew, right, the sins upon the grass. You're going to have the numbers like the grains of sand on the seashore, and, and you're going to find him. And if he goes to hide somewhere, if he goes in some kind of city to hide, you're going to have so many men, you can throw a grappling hook over that wall. You can literally tear down the wall and get to David. And not only will you wipe David out, you can wipe them all out. And he ends his speech, and Absalom and his team hear that and they they are blown away by this presentation and they say you know what Hushai's plan is better than Absalom than Ahithophel's plan we're going to go with that now now in reality Ahithophel's plan was was better and if they had followed Ahithophel's plan if they had gone at this moment and attacked David before he was prepared for it they might have been able to defeat him Uh, but by delaying every moment that they waited 
gave David more time to build a strategy, more time to acquire more troops, more time to decide where he wanted this battle to take place. And David was a far better general than Absalom. This is, this is like giving Bill Belichick three or four weeks to get ready for a football game, right? You don't want to do that. You don't want to give somebody like David that much time. But yet there's a secret to why Absalom and all his men were so willing to throw away Ahithophel's counsel, even though he had never been wrong before, and go with Hushai's plan. And the storyteller lets us in on that secret. Look at the end of verse 14. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster upon Absalom. This is why they listened to the wrong plan. Because God was in total control. And his purpose was to bring Absalom down, and his purpose would come to pass. And ultimately, God's purpose in this world is that all the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That is what God purposes to do, and it will come to pass. Look at the scripture in Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that have not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So our God will do all his pleasure. He will do what he has purposed. And you know what? Because God has purposed to finish the good work that he started in you and me who know Christ, He's going to do that. Because God has purposed to work all things together for good in your life, he's going to do that. Because God has purposed to hold you, Christian, in the palm of his hand, eternally secure, he is going to do that. Because he purposes to give you a life in Christ that is abundant and free and everlasting, he is going to to do that. He will do all that he has purposed. And so as his children, we should have no fear at all. Because our great God will do everything that he has purposed to do. Here's a third truth I want us to see about the king and his kingdom. When we're faithful to God's chosen king, amazingly, God can even use our actions to move his kingdom forward. Now, we won't spend long on the latter half of chapter 17, but it is neat to see how um, in the buildup to this battle against Absalom, the people who do remain loyal to David and how they take practical steps to help the king, God's chosen king. Now, earlier, David had set up a, a chain of informants to bring him news of whatever Absalom was planning to do. You remember that his plan started with Hushai, who would find out what Absalom would do, and then Hushai would go and he would tell the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Then we find out that they would tell a servant girl who would go outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem and tell the priest's two sons, 
who then would take that message and they would carry it all the way to David so he would know what Absalom was about to do. And yet with all these precautions in place, what we find out is that a little boy happened to see them talking and he goes to Absalom and he rats them out. And so Absalom sends a posse after these priest sons to try to catch them before these spies make it to David. And this is almost like a, like a scene from, a, uh, from an action movie, a suspense movie. But they never catch up to the priest's sons because they end up hiding in the bottom of a well. And a woman sends the posse from Absalom on a wild goose chase. It really reminds me of Joshua chapter 2, the way that Rahab hid the two spies who came into the city of Jericho. Once the coast is clear, the priest's sons get up and they make it to David and they warn David. They pass along the message from from Hushai. The message from Hushai was, listen, I don't know what Absalom's going to do. Here's what Ahithophel told him to do. Here's what I told him to do. You probably need to be prepared for whatever he does. You need to be prepared for the worst case situation. And what you need to do is go ahead and get yourself and your men on the other side of the Jordan River. And so that's what David does. That's where, in God's providence, the battle ends up taking place. Now skip down to verses 27 to 29. We find some more people who help David. Three men, we won't go into all of their backgrounds, but they come to David and his men. And you can read in verse 28 all of the gifts that they give to David on this occasion. Right at the right time, right before the battle with Absalom is about to take place, God sends these folks who are loyal and faithful to God's chosen king, and they help him when he needs it the most. Now, why are we spending time talking about these people? Well, think about the situation they were in. This was before the battle had been decided, right? They were choosing sides. They were choosing to align themselves with King David when from all appearances, it looked like Absalom was about to sweep in and wipe David and all his men out. And yet they were choosing to be loyal to David at this moment. And God uses what they did, what each of them individually did as a part of his plan to give David the victory. He uses Hushai's counsel. He uses the priests. He uses the priest's son. He uses the lady that hid them in the well. He uses these three men who come to David and his men with all of these gifts. He uses all of them in his plan to save David's life and to extend David's kingdom. And you know what? We need to remember that today as well. Just because we have said that God is sovereign over everything, Just because we have said that God's sovereign purpose will come to pass, that does not mean that those of us who have aligned ourselves on team Jesus with God's chosen king, Jesus Christ, that does not mean that we need to sit on our hands and do nothing. Right? It doesn't mean that we say, well, God is sovereign. God's purposes are going to come to pass, so I can just sit on my hands and do nothing at all. No, God has ordained the means as well as the ends. And God calls us to be active in his kingdom. And isn't it amazing that just like he did here, God can use the things that we do, even the little things we do, and weave them into his plan to move the kingdom forward. He can use the the stay-at-home mom who day after day after day teaches her children the word of God to raise up warriors for the kingdom that will be used in his plan. 
He can, he can use our, our frail and sometimes we feel like meager attempts to, to tell other people about Christ. And he can use those little seeds that we plant and one day bring them to a harvest. He, he can take everything that we do, the gifts that we give, the talents and the spiritual gifts that we put into service, the time that we invest. He can use all of it as a part of his sovereign plan to move his kingdom forward. Isn't it astonishing? And yet this is what our God does every single day if we will be faithful to God's chosen king. By the time we get to chapter 18, both Absalom's army and David's army are on the other side of the Jordan River and the battle is about to begin. Let's read the rest of the story for today. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1. David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the king answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away... They will not care about us, nor if half of us die will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? Why, why did you not strike him there to the ground? I should have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods, and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's Monument. Here's a final truth about God's kingdom and God's king that we need to see in this story. Everyone, everyone 
who proudly opposes God's chosen king will face God's judgment. There's actually two examples of this in this story. The first one is back in chapter 17 in verse 23. If you'll turn back there with me, that's what we read about the end of Ahithophel, David's advisor who betrayed him and went over to Absalom's side. He has been called the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament, and he dies in much the same way. Look at chapter 17, verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Absalom, or excuse me, Ahithophel knew that because Absalom did not follow his counsel, he knew that Absalom was going to lose, and that David was going to be reinstalled as the king, and as usual, Ahithophel was right about both of those things. He also knew that once David was reinstalled, he would be put to death for the treason that he had committed, and so he decided to do the job himself. But what a tragic character. Ahithophel is. Again, he was always on target, wasn't he? He was always right. And yet it's one thing to be smart and another thing to be godly. You can be right about almost everything. But if you're wrong about who the king is, it doesn't really matter what you were right about. Ahithophel did not follow God's chosen king. And if we make the same error, if we do not follow God's chosen king, who is Jesus Christ, then sadly and tragically, our life will end the same way that his did. We need to make sure we're right about what matters most. But more on that in a moment. The second character in this story who opposes David and meets God's judgment is, of course, David's son, Absalom in chapter 18 tells that story. It's an unflattering and in some ways comical but also tragic ending for David's son. As he's gearing up for the battle at the beginning of chapter 18, he divides his men into three divisions. He wants to go out with the men, but they plead with David to remain in the city where he would be more safe. And so David is standing there in the gate of the city as he's watching all of his men, all three of his divisions, file by him in order. And he takes the three commanders of his three divisions aside and he gives them an order. He says, deal gently with my son Absalom. Go easy on my boy. Now, this was a command that David should have never given. David is acting as though his son is merely doing something that he'll grow out of in a moment if he's given an opportunity. And he's failing to see what the truth is, that this is his son's character, that his son has waged an all-out war against David and against his throne and against the very promise of God himself. And really, David should not have told his men who were going out to risk their lives for him to go and fight Absalom gently. I don't know how they were supposed to do that anyway, and as we'll see in a moment, one of David's commanders just point blank refuses to obey that order. The, the battle itself is only told in three verses, verses 6 through 8, because it's really not the focus. But 
Much to be expected, David's more experienced soldiers have a field day with Absalom's army. David's strategy was for the battle to take place in a dense forest where his experienced men would have the upper hand. And verse 7 says there was a great slaughter. 20,000 men of Absalom's troops died that day. But the storyteller is really focused on the death of one man, Absalom. As he is riding on his mule, no doubt riding away from the battle lines as the route was on, the text says that his mule went under the branches of a tree. And his head, most likely his hair, was caught in the branches of the tree. And the mule rides on from underneath him. And he is left hanging there in midair, suspended by his hair, hanging from this tree. This is pitiful, but it's also pretty funny. And it is especially funny when you remember how proud Absalom was of his hair. Right earlier in this story, we read about that. He, he was the most beautiful, gorgeous man in all of Israel. He grew his hair out really long. He only got a haircut once every year, and it was like a public festival. When he got his hair cut, he would weigh his hair on a scale. That's how proud he was of his long, flowing, beautiful hair. And yet, how ironic it is that the source of his pride ends up becoming his downfall. Uh, I, I think uh, all of my fellow follically challenged friends would uh, agree with me that this is just another reason why it's better to be bald. <laughs> right? You can ride in a convertible and your hair doesn't get messed up. And if you ever ride under a tree, this will not happen to you. But the mule that Absalom was riding on, again, it rode out from underneath him. And as one person said, that mule was a royal mount. And when that mule rode out from underneath him, it was a picture of the kingdom going out from underneath him as well. But one of David's men sees Absalom hanging there, and he runs and tells Joab, I saw him hanging there. And Joab says, you saw him there? You just saw him there and left to tell me? Why didn't you kill him there? And this man is admirable. He says, I wouldn't do it no matter how much money you gave me, because I heard the king say not to do it. But Joab has no such scruples. So he takes three spears in his hand, he runs to Absalom, and he thrusts the three spears through his heart. And then ten of his fellow soldiers pull him down from the tree and finish the job. There's been much debate about what Joab did here, but the narrator doesn't make any judgments. Joab certainly was both right and wrong. He was wrong for disobeying David's order. But what he did to Absalom is what needed to happen to Absalom. And the narrator just leaves it at that. And after Absalom was dead, they threw him in a pit and covered him with rocks. This is the same burial that Achan got in Joshua chapter 7. It's the death of a traitor. The death that the word of God called for in someone like Absalom's case. Absalom had a very different legacy in mind, though. If you look in verse 18... We read that in his lifetime, because he had no sons, now earlier he had had three sons, but presumably these three sons had all died by this time. And so Absalom knows there's no son to carry on my name. And so he makes a monument in his own name and calls it Absalom's Monument. This is really, if you think about it, what Absalom spent his life doing, building monuments in his own name. Absalom's chief characteristic was his overweening pride. Absalom's life was not about God. 
It wasn't about his father David. It wasn't about God's promise. It wasn't about anything but Absalom. And it's ironic that what he meant to be a symbol of his glory really became a reminder of the shameful life that he had lived. But you know, the thing is, we can't just read Absalom's story and move on thinking that it does not apply to us, because it does apply to us. In fact, the truth of the matter is we have all been Absalom. God's ultimate chosen king is Jesus. And God has told us to live for him and to follow him and to obey his word. But the truth of the matter is none of us have perfectly done that. We have all, in one way or another, turned traitor to the one true king. We've all lived for ourselves instead of God. In fact, here's the truth that I want us to see. We have all rebelled against our father and against our king just like Absalom did. But I hope you will hear this. Because of God's grace, our story does not have to end the way his story did. You know, our rescue, if we will be rescued, starts with admitting that we have all lived life the way Absalom lived it. This is how we have treated God. As one person put it, we have all stolen the kingdom. We have all lived life as if we were the king. We have all brazenly humiliated God by flaunting our sin on the rooftop of our lives for all the world to see. And and right now, if you're here and you haven't yet turned to trust in Jesus, then spiritually speaking, you're actually in the same position that Absalom was when he was hanging from that tree. He was on the brink of judgment. And that judgment was going to come the moment Joab thrust his spear into his heart. That The reality is for us, if we do not know Jesus as our Savior, we are suspended there like he was between heaven and earth. We're on the brink of judgment and we're one heartbeat away from it. And the Bible says every single one of us will one day, when we die, stand before the God who made us in judgment. And if you don't know Jesus, you're not ready to meet him. If you haven't yet asked him to forgive you of your sins, then you will receive the judgment that God says all of us deserve because of our sin. But like I said a moment ago, even though we're all guilty like Absalom, our story doesn't have to end like his. And and you know why? It's because there was someone else who hung from a tree. That there is someone else who was suspended between heaven and earth. There's someone else who had a spear thrust through him. There is someone else who was under the hand of God's judgment as he hung there. And yet when Jesus hung on the cross, he was not there to bear the judgment he deserved. He was there to bear the judgment that you and I deserved. And he paid for all of our sin in full. And so the Bible says, even though we've all been like Absalom, if we would turn to Jesus, if we would see him upon the cross hanging there as the full and final sacrifice for our sins, and if we would put our trust and our faith in him, then we will be forgiven. That is the gift. God wants to give us. That is the good news 
of the Bible. Your story does not have to end like his because grace is available to you if you would reach out your hand and take it. I want to ask you to stand right now and I want to invite you to come. If you're here and you would say, you know what, I don't know if I'm ready. If that judgment day were to come for me today, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready and prepared to stand before the Lord. I don't know if my sins have ever been forgiven, but I want to know. And I want to invite you right now, come and speak with me or one of the other pastors that's going to be here. And we would love to pray with you about that, taking that step to receive Jesus, the Savior, the King, into your life. You come right now as we sing together. 